That's why we call it the American dream. Not Barack's dream, not Joe's dream, but the American dream. We want it for the kid who doesn't go to college because she can't afford it. We want it for the worker who's wondering if his wages will pay this winter's heating bill. And today, the cost of that dream is rising faster than ever before. The American dream, going from rags to riches, making your own way, finding success in a land of opportunity. It's an enticing prospect and one which has endured and been exported across the globe. But while we cling on to this narrative, does such a hope truly exist anymore? Has it ever or has it always been exactly what we call it? A dream, a myth, a story. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss this with me for The Bunker USA is Jim Cullen, author of The American Dream, A Short History That Shaped a Nation. Welcome to The Bunker, Jim. Pleasure. Thank you. Jim, where did the the phrase American Dream actually come from? Where was it first used, and when did it become popular? Well, that's actually surprisingly mysterious and hard to pin down. I've heard about references to the phrase going back to the late 19th century, Um, but it does appear that the term was popularized in the 1930s in a book called The Epic of America by a man named James Truslow Adams. And um, and that was sort of a, a textbook history of the United States that was actually very popular. It was very successful. Ironically, he Adams wanted to call the book The American Dream, and his publisher told him that he couldn't do that because no one would pay $3 for a book about a dream. Um, <laughs> but the book really sort of took off. And during the Second World War, it was distributed uh, to soldiers abroad and it, it sort of entered the national bloodstream and, mm. you know, has sort of it sort of picked up momentum from there and, re- and really has sort of been with us ever since. Do you think it was that timing that made it become so popular, a time where it felt like the nation needed, well, the world needed hope? Well, I think, you know, the book was published, you know, right about at the bottom of, of, of the Great Depression. And so, yes, I, I do think that that was um, part of it. Interestingly enough, Adams himself was a fairly conservative fellow, and, and he was opposed to many of the reforms of, of, of President Franklin Roosevelt uh, and the New Deal and, and was pretty disillusioned with it. But nevertheless, Roosevelt's ideas on the New Deal and indeed American recovery and American affluence which, of course, again, were sort of internationalized, you know, by by the experience of the Second World War and its aftermath, you know, ended up, I guess you would say, to use, use contemporary terms, sort of went viral. And <laughs> and it, while it started out as a, you know, a, a, an exhortation and encouragement in a time of privation, it ended up becoming an emblem of national affluence in the, in the post-war mm-hmm. decades. And I do think that the concept really, you know, really consolidated and, and took on its um, totemic power you know, as a result of the, you know, the the peak of the American empire in the mid 20th century. So from the very outset, did it not really have a a defined singular meaning? Because as you said, the person who popularized the term didn't then agree with the actions which then seemed to embody the term for a lot of people. So has it always been something that's been hard to pin down with one solid definition? The short answer is yes. Um, you know, and Adams wrote about it, and I think at one point, and I'm paraphrasing, but not far from what he actually said, you know, he described that dream of a land where you could aspire and achieve your goals as you imagine them. And so that in some very generic sense is what people have always understood the American dream to mean. It's 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 sort of confidence in the efficacy of aspiration. Mm. However, you know, I was at great pains in the book that I wrote to suggest that in fact 
the dream has always existed in many forms and indeed existed long before the phrase was uh, in common parlance mm -hmm. and that there are forms in the American dream that are primarily religious. There are forms in the American dream that are primarily political, economic, and indeed that probably is the primary way most mm -hmm. people understand the term um, and, and so on. You split the dream up into several parts in your book. What are those key key different aspects, would you say, in the chapters that you'd you'd written out? Well, to me, I, I think the, the really pivotal people in this story are the, the English Puritans of the 17th century, the pilgrims who, who come to Plymouth Colony in 1620, and then the more establishmentarian Puritans who, who found the Massachusetts Bay Company in 1630. And their, their lives, their work rests on what I think of as a tremendous paradox, because mm. both of these people are, theologically speaking, Calvinists. They do not believe that they have agency to affect their own salvation. And yet, they do the equivalent of moving to Mars, uh, to the far edges of the earth, not having any idea what they're getting themselves into, driven by this incredible energy and passion, and also savvy and organizational acumen you know, to create a society on the other side of the ocean that becomes premised on this notion that you can, you can do it differently and you can do it better. They have a dream in their, in their mind's eye, and they see it. And that template, I think, has been extremely powerful uh, and has, through various iterations, persists to this very day. When I when I look at you know movements like Black Lives Matter, when I look at movements like LGBTQ rights, I think that these people are direct descendants, ironically, of of the Puritans and the Pilgrims in their confidence. That and that, of course, is at the heart of what the American dream is: that we that it, it can be better, it can be different than it is. Hmm. You mentioned it was almost like, in modern day terms, something that went viral. And to me, when you see a viral video, it seems at first no one really knows what's going on. And then it gets spread and spread and spread. And then eventually people work it out. And then there is an accepted history of that video. Is this phrase almost like that? Are we at a point now where there is a definition which is widely accepted? If we come to that point after a long while of it being more superfluous? Well, it's interesting because it is this sort of conceptual penumbra that's sort of out there. But part of the reason why it has its tremendous valence and durability is because it's something that people really experience in a very direct personal way. And yeah. the thing about the United States is that it is quite literally a place where this idea is presumed to have a certain kind of mythic validity to it. Is it because our concept of the American dream, say if I were an American, is passed down to me from from my family? It's a shared history. It's Is that something that keeps it self-sustaining? Because what your grandparents did and what they wanted for you is what you perceive the American dream to be. So it's not just your own notion. It's a, it's a long tail thing going right back to your fruit, your ancestors. Well, it's it's sort of dialectical in a funny kind of way that way, because mm. I think it does function the way you're describing. It is it is a generational inheritance. Yeah. But part of what makes the American dream dynamic and part of what makes the US and in this and in, in this case it really derives its identity from from the from the UK, especially uh, an English form of Protestantism, is this notion of of individual choice and experience. So the American dream in effect gets reborn in every generation because mm. in fact, you know, if you're the child of a, of a, of a family that owns its own business, your dream may be different. And in fact, your mm. dream almost has to be different. It's that dynamic quality and that ever renewing quality that, that, you know, mm. has allowed the American dream to persist as long as it has, and also has made it as maddeningly ambiguous as it is the way that yeah. people experience it. Is that also by how media changes as well? Because, you know, the, you mentioned that this, uh, 
this phrase came from a book, but now the way we communicate over social media, over Instagram, over TikTok, does that create new American dreams where you know, you're having these parasocial relationships with people that you do not know who almost give you insight like friends and like family members? So that spreads out what your, what your notion can be. Well, it, it certainly diffuses, um, and it is a product of, I mean, I think you're right, it's a product of a, of a mass media. It achieves its incandescence you know, in things like movies and in television and in popular music uh, and so on. And and in a way, you know, again, to borrow a, a contemporary term, the American dream in effect is a kind of meme. I mean, it's a it's a it's a phrase. It's a it's a shorthand concept mm. that people pass back and forth between each other with some slippage in in understanding about what it actually means or what, what it does and does not connote. And it also in terms of the disposition that people have toward it. Sometimes it's used dismissively. Sometimes it's used as sort of affirmatively. Sometimes mm. it's used normatively to describe a dynamic in the culture. And again, I think that that ambiguity is precisely what feeds it because it can mean different things to different people. And indeed, they can often be talking past each other even as they're yeah. using the same, the same language. Jim, if the American dream has been around for a long time. Do you think there is a, on a societal level, it can be achieved as well? It's, it's not just an individualistic thing. It's more about the wider society too. And do you think we're any nearer to, to reaching that? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think it speaks to a, I guess you'd say a divide in the way the American dream is understood. Because I think there have always been people who have sort of understood the dream in libertarian individualist terms. You know, the very moment, I mean, I'm talking about these Puritans, at the very moment that they are doing what they're doing in New England, there's another group of folks coming from Southern and Western England who are settling in places like Virginia, and they really don't have any interest in reforming and rebuilding a society. Their primary interest is in getting rich, you know, yeah. um, getting someone else to do the work for them, bring over some African slaves, you know, try to find some gold. If you can't do that, then go for tobacco, and, mm. and, and they're off to the races. And these are basically two different societies yeah you know, who both have a dream, but they're really conceptualizing in different ways. And and again, those two streams run forward, you know, in, in American history. I think there are certainly people, we, early in this conversation, we referred to the New Deal. I mean, I think someone like, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and, and Norman Rockwell, who sort of embodied, you know, uh, Roosevelt's ideas in a series of the Four Freedoms paintings, definitely sort of understood the American dream in collective terms. Martin Luther King Jr., whose dream, by the way, was not primarily economic. Certainly, it was mm. that was a big component of it. But I think, you know, King's American dream, I have a dream. And that's that's the mm. way he framed the speech in 1963, was, was a collective dream. You know, but yeah. but if you talk to, you know, Americans of a more libertarian stripe, if you go through parts of the South, you know, um, or parts of the West of the United States, they're going to talk about the American dream with the same fervency of a socialist from Vermont, but they're not necessarily going to be understanding that thing to take the same form or be realized the same way. In your book, you also highlight a Richard Rorty quote, which is, you have to describe the country in terms of what you passionately hope it will become, as well as in terms of what you know it to be now. You have to be loyal to a dream country rather than to the one to which you wake up every morning. Unless such loyalty exists, the ideal has no chance of becoming actual. America is a geopolitical economic powerhouse. Is part of that success due to people who live there being rooted in this this narrative? I do think that, you know, American civilization, you know, has had a has had a pretty dramatic impact on the world in the 20th century. Much of it negative, 
some of it positive, and we can speak in terms of you know free markets, or we can speak of democracy um, as, as very real things. But I, I think that the soft power here is the, is this sense of hope and possibility that um, that people associate with America, and 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 I, and indeed their critiques of America are often rooted in the distance between the ideal and the reality. This is our gift, as it were, to, to world civilization. And I do think that, um, you know, it's in that regard, it's kind of telling that the embodiment of this, and I, an embodiment is kind of a weird word to use when you're talking about music, but it, but I think it is in American music. And I think in Black music in particular, and this sort of, this, um, this the way in which slavery and freedom get, you know, integrated into a, into a, you know, a yearning and a, and a painful reality at the same time, I think it gets very close to the heart of what we're talking about here. Jim, I know you are a fellow Bruce Springsteen fan, uh, which is probably an underestimation, as you were the author of Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen and the American Tradition. Uh, To me, Bruce Springsteen feels like someone who embodies the American dream. But in 2012, he said, I've spent my life judging the distance between American reality and the American dream. Is he right to be discerning over this? And should we all be more, more critical of this notion? Well, I think uh, yes, and I think that that Springsteen is a is a very good example of what we were talking about earlier. As someone who, by any account, has sort of achieved his dream and yet has never stopped looking at it critically and paying close attention to people whose lives have not turned out the way that they hoped, and mm-hmm. and and I think that that recognition on his part and his ability to literally dramatize that is part of why he has um, elicited and maintained such a level of devotion for for, for sort of a half century. Um, I do think that that you know one must always maintain a, a critical sensibility toward the American dream. Always be aware of the distance between ideal and reality. But I would also maintain that you know it is a dream after all. It's not the American reality, and mm-hmm. and and that the the the, the failure of a dream in, in in any given instance is not prima facie proof that it is a lie. And and that is both a statement of hope, and that is also both a, and that's also a statement of uh, of a maddening you know, ambiguity. It's very difficult to affirm or to give up on the dream in a, in a funny kind of way. Do you think there ever could be anything that replaces this this story? Will there ever be a post-American dream America? You know, I've, I've thought a little about this and I don't really have a good answer because I don't know what, I don't know what it looks like for a dream to die, you know, or how you even know. I mean, you know, most of us are living our lives in sort of in the present tense. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we may say to ourselves, you know, well, I haven't made it yet. Or I did fail at this, but at least I did that. Yeah. Um, so I used to be an exceptionalist, you know, to use the, the term of art here. I am no longer. I do believe there was such a thing as the Roman dream. I do believe that, you know, that, 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 a, that a soldier from the provinces could do a military service, marry a nice girl, settle down, become a citizen, maybe own some slaves, you know, I mean, actually, you know, achieve that kind of upward mobility that we would recognize in some form mm-hmm. today. And I do think that, you know, there is such a thing as the Chinese dream that's being enacted as we speak. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to um, insist that this thing is uniquely and solely American, nor I, because I have to believe that all human constructs are ultimately mortal, that this one will last forever. But I don't believe on the evidence of what we've seen so far that the dream is dead. And the, the very the very insistence with which we have conversations like this suggests an urgency and a vitality <laughs> that it hasn't quite surrendered yet. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. 
Bunker USA was presented by Jacob Jarvis. Production by Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Jade Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.